Hello again. I want to begin by just saying what a joy it is to teach in this hall, this beautiful place. It's a cathedral. It's a California-style cathedral. You know, we don't have the gold uh, chandeliers or anything, but beautiful wood and the, the sight lines. And I remember 30-some years ago, when we first found this land, walking this land, there was nothing here but saying this is the perfect place for a, a meditation center near a big urban area. And it is indeed, we are so blessed to have this place. And uh, last month I did a 10, 10 day silent retreat up the hill. And once again, was completely shocked and appalled to see my mind up close and personal <laughs> over an extended period of time. Disastrous. This, you know the instructions are simple. You know, just pay attention to your breath. And, you know, I'm paying attention to my breath and my mind is continuing to have fantasies and plans and regrets and talk to me without consulting me. Just going on and on. And then I realized again that great truth that is so important that the mind has a mind of its own. And uh, if you don't see it clearly, if you don't see how your reality is created, then you are destined to be a slave to that old conditioning that's so deep and deeply ingrained in, in our brains. And it's only after you see it clearly can you begin to learn how to uh, refuse it, how to ignore yourself. Uh, and when you do, when you do, as, as happened to me again, after five or six days of hard work, uh, started to taste those moments of freedom and those moments when the mind was calm and at ease. And it is, as the Buddha described it, the highest happiness. So I highly recommend it if uh, you haven't done a long re silent retreat, long, a week long or a 10 day, they're wonderful, they're wonderful, they're, they're transformative. The Buddha, the king of Kosala came to the Buddha and described the Buddha's followers as joyful and elated jubilant and exultant, enjoying the spiritual life with faculties pleased, free from anxiety, lighthearted, and living with a gazelle's mind. That's what I'm aspiring to, a gazelle's mind. It just... <laughs> Asked why his disciples were so happy, the Buddha replied, they did not repent the past, nor do they brood over the future. They live in the present. Therefore, they are radiant. Also, I should tell you before I go any further that I am running for president. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm walking for president. I'm not running. Um, 
my first act as president will be to create a new government department, the Department of Meditation and Therapy, which will set up deprogramming centers around the country and teach hyperactive Americans how to be less productive members of a less productive society. See, I don't think we need a stimulus package. I think we need a sedative package. That's what I'm going for. The whole country could work with the mantra, enough, enough, we've got enough stuff, enough. <laughs> By the way, my, my running mate, my walking mate, is a famous old candidate, nobody. And the reason to, to vote for nobody is because nobody has all the answers. Uh, no, nobody loves you. <laughs> nobody knows the trouble you've seen. And nobody cares. <laughs> so, so we're a good team. We're a good team. There's something taking place in our universe, in our world, that's in some ways beyond politics. And that is what's happening to the planet, what's happening to the ecology of our world. And I took a vow a few years ago, I've kept it mostly, which is, uh, the vow is to talk, every time I do a public talk, to say something about endangered species. A recent study by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature found the following percentage of species that are threatened with extinction. They include 21% of all known mammals, 30% of amphibians, 35% of invertebrates, and 70% of plants. The statistics become more alive if you actually hear the names of the species. So let me read a few. Uh, those disappearing include the Sierra Nevada red fox, the San Joaquin kit fox, the Pacific pocket mouse, the Fresno kangaroo rat, and the big ones, the California bighorn sheep, the stellar sea lion, sperm whale, right whale, humpback and blue whales, and the famous birds of California, the condor, the greater sandhill crane, the bald eagle, the great gray owl, marbled murrelet, the common bank swallow, all disappearing. And what about the plant kingdom? Filled with beings whose very names suggest and evoke tastes, smells, beautiful sights. Mount Gleason paintbrush, Succulent owl, owl's clover, mariposa lily, crystal springs fountain thistle, Owens Valley checker bloom, slender orchid grass. All are listed as endangered. <clears throat> How could this be happening and why? For almost all of our history as human beings, 
we've been busy protecting ourselves from nature. And now it seems we're being called on to protect nature from us. But of course, we are nature. And that's exactly the shift of consciousness that we need if we're going to heal what's going on. Because it's going to require some major changes in how we think and how we live. One thing is is perfectly clear, and that is that there are too many of us. Some of you will have to go. (laughs) I saw a bumper sticker the other day. It said, eight billion people can't be right. (laughs) And it certainly, this planet cannot sustain that many people, especially if there's a lot of them who live our lifestyle. But who's going to be the first to give it all up? My friend and teaching colleague, sometimes Joanna Macy, there's no biological fix, no magic bullet that can save us from the population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, pollution, species extinctions, we're going to have to want different things, seek different pleasure, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us and our global economy. That's what we're doing. We're learning how to be satisfied with our own mind, trying to heal some of the aggression and the fear and the greed that we all carry with us and that our culture fosters often. We're trying to find different pleasures, the highest happiness, as the Buddha said, a mind that is at ease, a mind of peace. Mahatma Gandhi, I do not believe that a multiplication of wants and machinery contrived to supply them, is taking the world a single step nearer to its goal. I wholeheartedly detest this mad desire to destroy distance and time, to increase animal appetites and go to the ends of the earth in search of their satisfaction. If modern civilization stands for all this, and I have understood it to do so, I call it satanic. Alan Watts said, what we need is a view of ourselves that is less grandiose. All the other species of life seem to be free from our human scheming and self-importance. The birds and beasts indeed pursue their business of eating and breeding with the utmost devotion, but they do not pretend that it serves higher ends or that it makes a significant contribution to the progress of the world. Somehow over the centuries, we humans have become so arrogant. We think the entire universe was made just for us and our drama. It's getting harder to support that position these days when we have satellites and telescopes and we see pictures of the universe 
It's, and it's shocking to remember that less than 100 years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe. The latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies. Galaxies, not solar systems. Galaxies containing 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. And it was all made just for us. <laughs> just to see if we could, just to confuse us, to see if we could overcome our egos and find out. But I, I contend that just as the Buddha wants to help us loosen our attachment to self, our individual self, because it ain't there, uh, that we might also want to loosen our attachment to our species self. I mean, after all, do we think that the human species is going to live forever? The evidence would say that no, because every, uh, the mammal species, uh, mammal species lives four or five million years, the average, on the average. We have a few years left, but we are going to change. One of the most revolutionary uh, things that Darwin ever said was that species change through time, that we are not fixed. We are not all put here fixed as who we are, but we evolve, we change. The, nature demands that we change. Nature presents us with new obstacles, new uh, demands on, on our survival skills. And we grow new appendages and we grow new ways of being. We didn't, it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. And uh, it's pretty much bound to change if it follows along with the way things seem to go. A recent study at Cambridge ranked the top 100 species of life in order of their overall importance and impact on the life of the planet. Number one was earthworms. Number two, algae. Number three, cyanobacteria. Then rhizobia. Then lactobacillus. And then number six, homo sapiens. <laughs> we, we might be able to, you know, rise in the ranks if we, if we get much more time. This is from a book called Timescale by scientist Nigel Calder. He writes, the master of this planet is grass. It has lured humans into being its slaves, clearing trees and plants out of the way, making irrigation to ensure that the grasses grow tall, especially wheat, rice, and maize. These grasses have recruited battalions of both four-legged and two-legged animals to serve them. And Heathcote Williams wrote of another master, if an alien were to hover a few hundred yards above the planet, it could be forgiven for thinking that cars were the dominant life form and that human beings were a kind of ambulatory fuel cell injected when the car wished to move off and ejected when they were spent. These days, 
driving anywhere in the Bay Area, it just, doesn't it just make you a little crazy? And don't you wish that somebody with vision would say, we gotta all get out of our cars because it's no fun anymore. Everybody having their own little box of steel and plastic to drive around in so they can go wherever they want, whenever they want. We're going to have to say, okay, I'll, I'll go with my others, other people. I'll travel with them. I'll wait for the bus or the high-speed train. Where's, where's, where's the vision, really? I'm sorry, I get... I drove over here from the East Bay. And <laughs> this, is, uh, this is from the Shambhala Sun a few years back. They're made out of meat. Meat? No doubt about it, we picked up several from different parts of the planet, took them aboard our recon vessels, and probed them all the way through. They're completely meat. That's impossible. What about the radio signals, the messages to the stars? Who made the machines? That's who we want to contact. They made the machines. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Meat made the machines. <laughs> That's ridiculous. How can meat make a machine? You're asking me to believe in sentient meat? What about the brain? Oh, there's a brain all right. It's just that the brain is made out of meat. <laughs> so what does the thinking? You're not understanding me, are you? The brain does the thinking, the meat. Thinking meat? You're asking me to believe in thinking meat? Yes, thinking meat, conscious meat, loving meat, dreaming meat. The meat's the whole deal. Are you beginning to get the picture? Oh my God, you're serious. Then they're made out of meat? Yes, they are made out of meat and they've been trying to get in touch with us for almost a hundred of their years. So what does this meat have in mind? It wants to talk to us. They actually do talk then? They use words, ideas, concepts? Yes, except they do it with meat. You know how when you slap or flap meat, it makes a noise? Well, they talk by flapping their meat at each other. <laughs> they can even sing by squirting air through their meat. Oh my God, singing meat. This is absolutely too much. go down laughing. We've got to go down <laughs> laughing. So I'm sure that you're growing familiar with uh, the biome that's been in the news quite a bit lately, the fact that we are made of uh, other living beings. 90% of your body is actually uh, the weight of other living beings. Molecular biologists uh, say there are at least 1,000 different species of life inside your large intestine alone. More living beings in your mouth right now than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. They have houses and churches and roads in there. <laughs> Whole civilization between your cheeks. I sometimes wonder if they, you know, what if, what if all those little microbes got together and decided they didn't like the way I was living? You know, they wanted to, <laughs> they wanted to revolt. 
They say, don't take so many showers. <laughs> Lynn, Lynn Margulis, a great molecular biologist, says, our concept of the individual is completely arbitrary. Each of us is actually a walking ecosystem. And they're finding all sorts of associations that happen with different biomes, different microbes, and how they affect our moods. And It's a whole new area of understanding who we are. The story of evolution is our collective autobiography. Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once the human egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, into a tubular worm-like body. The human embryo grows rudimentary fins, gills, webbed fingers and toes features of reptiles and amphibians as we cycle through the DNA of ancient ancestors. Even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. It happens in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. I think all this new understanding we have of who we are, how we're created, from the fields of biology, evolutionary sciences. I think the Buddha would not only welcome this new information, but use it as a way of pointing to who we are. And that was his whole, his whole teaching is about understanding identity and realizing that we are not separate beings, that we co-arise with all things. And that's what all this, a lot of this new information is, is helping us understand. I've been telling this story, uh, Richard Dawkins' book, uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, I think it is, where he talks about if you had a picture of your great-grandfather a hundred million great-grandfathers ago, and we all had a great-grandfather a hundred million great-grandfathers ago because that's how it works, we would, have had, we would have a picture of a fish. Some of your relatives, scaly, breathe underwater. Really, we're all related to those single-celled beings, the first life on this planet. The Buddha says, this construction self, what is its cause? What is its origin? says, take your mindful awareness and explore your body and your emotions and your breath and your thoughts and, and ask yourself, is this I? Is this me? Is this mine? Do I own this? Where did it come from? 
That's the essential existential question that we're investigating in our meditation practice. It's, also, it's wonderful. We use meditation for, to calm ourselves and to lower our heart rate and to bolster our immune system, all the wonderful things that meditation brings about. I, I read that meditation even changes the chemical mix of your saliva and that it's actually helps prevent tooth decay meditation. <laughs> but the investigation into the self is really the project that we're, we're invited to and is, is the liberation, the freedom that we all would like to have. I'm going to read this little piece, and then we'll have time for some talk, some discussion, questions, answers. Strange to say so, but one of the best things I learned in meditation is that I'm alive. I had rarely noticed it, but through increasing awareness of body and breath, I began to pay attention to this mysterious condition. Now, my identity includes the fact that I'm one of the living. I'm a live one. By the way, when I first heard people talking about identity theft, I said, yes. Take my identity, leave the cash. You too are a member of the Sangha of the Living. Glad you could make it. Life on Earth is now appearing as your name. The path of meditation reminds us that we are alive by leading us from our heads into our bodies. We come down from the story of our life to the fact of our life. My first teacher told me to sweep my body with awareness and slowly but surely I became familiar with my nose and my toes and what poet Mary Oliver calls the world of lime and appetite, the oceanic fluids. This bag of bones and seawater came alive and started to take over from my ego as the foundation of my identity. You might say I was born again as an animal. I had joined a grand and venerable sangha. To witness myself in the story of evolution, I feel a surge of compassion for the struggles of all life. Let's face it, the basic rules on this planet are a bitch. But the phrase, may all beings be happy, has a deeper ring to it when I regard myself as in the same world as those who dress in feathers, fur, scales, leaves, and bark. Now when I sit in meditation, I can feel my aliveness, my mammalian condition, my species self. I also sense my practice as part of a group effort by human beings to awaken to a new kind of freedom and sanity. Meditation has been called an evolutionary sport. In the light of that big perspective, I thank you for being on my team, part of this exciting project, helping us all to realize our precious collective human potential. So, David Suzuki, a very famous uh, ecologist and writer, says, when I 
give a talk or a speech, I, one thing I want to get across to people, you are an animal. It used to be used, didn't it? used to be used as a kind of a honorific, you animal, you. <laughs> but, you know, you go to a restaurant or a supermarket and there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed. People walk right through. They just, <laughs> no animals here. I think we should be glad to be considered a part of this kingdom of beautifully arrayed creatures. So, please, anybody, remarks, questions, answers? Yes. Oh, yes, we have, we have some microphones. We have a mic. Yeah. Put it close. Um, when you're talking about evolution, um, there was a huge program on Channel 9 this last year where they've dis- well, not only are we all humans come from Ethiopia outward, but um, there was subhumans, type humans in Africa and in Europe, China. Um, and it, it turns out from do- doing DNA that we mated with everything that looked human, <laughs> them, and it became part of us. And then when we finally got into Europe and China, there were Neanderthal who had been there for so long and in the Ice Age they turned white and light hair and then we mated with them and became white. They, they, know, they can do the DNA. They found the Neanderthal uh-huh. all over Europe mm-hmm. and China mm-hmm. in their DNA of people, but not in Africa because... Right. We went up. Right, right. But that's how we turned white, you know? So I thought, I laughed that's, for a half an hour. That's wonderful. Thank you so much yeah. for that. It's and so, light hair. Yes. So we actually mated them out of existence because we were more of us than them. And that's how we got rid of them very quickly. <laughs> mated them out of existence. I, I don't know how that works. but Well, they, 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 they never thought that they knew they probably did, but they didn't think they would reproduce. They would be like a donkey and a horse yeah, and yeah, make a mule. Yeah. They never, and then they found the DNA because they did the mm-hmm. Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. They found them all over Europe, especially in Tuscany was the highest percentage. Well, of course. <laughs> I don't know why that they said Tuscany had the highest percentage of De- uh, Neanderthal. That's 4%. wonderful. Thank you so much. That's it. That's the thing. I mean, that piece of information shatters so many belief systems and yes. and yes. prejudices and things that people have hold, are holding. And yes. I don't think we've really quite understand how to make those those new revelations, that new science, that new understanding, how to make it alive in us, you know, as wisdom, so it becomes the place we live from. It, it's sort of like the Buddha Dharma, you know. It you have to you have to bring it in and and work with it and become familiar with yourself in in its frame in its framework and similarly i think with with those pieces of information but they're 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 shattering of of old yeah 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 
That's true. Others. Nobody else, any more questions? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, or answers. I take answers too. spoke about endangered species, and right here in Marin, we have the Mount Tam manzanita. Uh, you mentioned the Tiburon mariposa lily. Um, there's the Jepson ceanothus. We have a lot of plants that are endangered, and uh, animals, too. Mm-hmm. The um, clapper rail, which has a new name. and So it, it's just to be aware when we go out anywhere in our yards or in nature that to be mindful of what we might step on accidentally or what we might disturb by with mm-hmm. our noise in our activities. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, thank you for bringing that forward. Well, thank you for adding to it. Uh, Gary Snyder would say, you, you should get to know at least the names of the plants that are living outside your door and the trees. Uh, that if you just learn their names, it will start to create a relationship and you know, you'll feel different about them. Yeah. I had a something I wanted to read to you, but anybody else? Does that speed up our extinction as well? What? As one species go, we climb the ladder towards extinction. Well, we're... We haven't listed ourselves on the endangered species list because there's not too few of us. There are too many of us. Um, my friend back there is wearing a T-shirt that, that says it all. It's from the University of, Santa, of, of California, Santa Cruz. It says, you share 30, 30 25 you share at least 25% of your DNA with bananas, get over yourself. (laughs) But one thing that I find really uh, interesting and and important as we do this practice, as you investigate yourself, important to realize what a different world we live in than people who lived just a little while ago, 100 years ago, uh, 200 years ago, and uh, um, how we're going through this great upheaval. We may not notice it or feel it real strongly at times, or most of the time, but uh, I made up this list. I thought it's pretty interesting. Henry Ford built his first car in 1893, now there are 800 million cars in our, in our, on our continent. Wright brothers made their first flight in 1903. First transmission of human speech via radio waves, 1900. 1900, Max Planck first formulated quantum theory, which led to the creation of the atomic bomb and complete transformation of our understanding of reality. 1900, Freud published the interpretation of dreams. In 1900, only one and a half billion people lived on Earth. 100 years ago, 
No cars, no airplane, no radio, no television, no computers, no painkillers, no antibiotics, no birth control, no Ziploc bags, no plastic. Nobody believed in rock and roll. <laughs> Just a hundred years ago, most of our ancestors, well, 200 years ago, most of our ancestors were peasants, probably. That there has been a radical shift of our our ways of life and our understanding of uh, life. And I don't know, it's, uh, people have said that's, that's why the Dharma practice, meditation practice, is so popular right now. It's, it's helping us to ground ourselves and, and to live in this time of such rapid change, to, to try to bring some more focus and, and uh, compassion for ourselves. I mean, we weren't built to, to live like this. We weren't even, I mean, we, we're now living like twice as long as people in, in 1900, literally. What are we gonna do with all that time on our hands? Get into trouble. <laughs> but I think it, to understand the context in which we do our practice is really useful. It takes away the sense of blame. We're all in this together. We're all sadrate, to use an old, an old English term, uh, Yiddish, actually. Sadrate. You know sadrate? Yeah, a few of you do. So crazy. It's not your... The, my latest book it was entitled, You Are Not Your Fault. That's what evolution, I think, tells me. Yeah. One one thing, but uh, how we relate to each other, how we protect each other, um, the mutuality between the species, large and small, I think is uh, critical. It's not enough to observe each other, but to begin to understand the interaction scientifically and emotionally and spiritually of other created beings and mm-hmm. uh, um, very simple things. I mean, you know, you take care of the, the trees and, and they give you the fruit and, and there's a mutuality. They give you the shade, you care for them, etc. And, and uh, I think that's very important in the association uh, between all, all beings. Thank you for that. Thank you. I think it's true. We, we, have, we serve each other. We're part of this particular web of life. Oh, can I ask you a question? I've, I'm the guy with the microphone now. Oh, okay. Next, next door, yeah. Uh, the, um, part of the beauty of what we all share is that as we were standing in the break, we started to discuss evolution. This is my dad. He is going to attend a spiritual, um, it's, a, it's a meditation training in New York, and it's, it's Christian-based, a Catholic-centering prayer, but it is, um, uh, it's examining evolution in the species. And I think one thing that came up as we discussed it was the question of 
how is it, how do you, uh, in fact, reference from the tradition that, you, that, that, that you're discussing, how do you reference that, the sense of magic that is with us all? Like, not just that we had this conversation in the midst of the break, but that you find this music that exists between us. Are these, in, are these aspects of the animal? Because it's quite an animal, isn't it? It is. We're, fasc we're, we're fascinating and creative, and look what we build. And uh, Yeah, I don't know. I think that being present and, and having a little bit more ease of mind, of a little more receptive rather than ag aggressive, stepping back a little bit, helps us, to, helps us to absorb the delight of being alive and seeing the profusion of life that... The meditation really helps to set our, uh, our, our frame of reference in that way. That when, when the mind is stilled and, and relaxed and uh, the world comes alive, you know, in a way that it doesn't when, when we're looking to see what we can, how we can manipulate things and how we can change everything. Is that... I don't know if that spoke to I suppose so. I guess it's the, you know, the, it's almost as if the, the way we experience the divine or this, the quality of this, what is so much more of than us alone together, this, the psychic realms that we share together, even that has evolved. So we get, we're getting closer, hopefully, to reaching and having a perception that we'd never had of something that is sublime, that it's just, I mean, that's, I was just wondering how you reference these, these realms that are, seem so much, so more than the physical uh, and, and the scientific. It's, I just was curious. The, the opening, opening page on my browser is uh, the NASA picture of the day. Every day they put it, NASA puts a new picture up, up and you know, you see galaxies exploding and, you know, just unbelievable, beautiful pictures of, of our universe. And uh, if, I, if I'm going slow and I sit with it for a little bit, I'm, I'm astonished that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm there. And what's this all about? There's some, there's some great mystery and even when you're, when you're meditating, if, if you focus on the breath without a sense of, oh, that's my breath, there's the in-breath, there's the out-breath, those are the sensations, there's something kind of magical about it that, that the divine is in each breath, especially if when you realize that you're not breathing. If you, at the end of the exhale, if you bring your attention to the palms of your hands or the top of your head, the next inhale will be kind of like a surprise, and you'll realize that it, you're not breathing. Breath is breathing through you. And suddenly, it's this magic, creative force. Uh, the breath itself becomes a, a gateway into the divine. I don't know. that. Thank you. Here we got... One here and over there. I'm not uh, quite sure that I'm comfortable with how to express my question, but I'm curious about your thoughts on as one goes towards more mindfulness, 
and these challenges that you spoke about with the ecology, that we don't, in the process of that, then become desensitized because we start to become, you know, we're aware of these things, but we, we look at, well, that's their dharma, their, their, their suffering, um, that we don't become desensitized to all the sufferings of the world because we focus more on our own mindfulness. I'm curious about that because I, I feel a tension about mm-hmm. those two things? It sort of takes care of itself. It's a kind of organic thing that happens when, as you become more and more familiar with your own crazy mind, you watch your emotions, you, you realize that everybody is stuck in the same way you are, and it becomes a kind of universal that that you're experiencing you you really feel and you begin to feel uh compassion for people in a way that's very you you're very connected to other people rather than retreating into your own your own psyche or uh, your own space does that make sense it it does but what i was getting to is the the you can have that compassion for everything, but then then there can be a place where you are compassionate, but you don't you're not really taking action to help others because you're busy meditating. No, not busy meditating. <laughs> no, I, I, I look at I look at um, India, Southeast Asia. I mean, these are these are places where this practice came from. Yet the abject poverty in these countries is many, mm-hmm. many times mm-hmm. greater than ours. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I, you know, you see it in the suffering of the cities of, yeah. of India. And yeah. so... Yeah, I, you know, I think it's both and, that you, you know, you do your meditation practice as a way to heal your own aggression and fear and, and uh, greed. And, uh, and then... Whatever your gift is, you do what you can. You get the spark of compassion and wanting to to offer the world something. Then you then you do whatever action is appropriate to your to your talents. But I don't think that one cancels out the other. I think they're they're two they're complementary. You know, we were all pretty loud and crazy and an activist in the 60s, but we didn't have a, I don't know, a kind of core grounding. We didn't really understand ourselves very well. We all did too many drugs, too. <laughs> anyway, I thank you for the question. I guess this is sort of a personal question, um, but I'm wondering, you mentioned that you were on this silent retreat and you sort of came back to peace, but it like, took a lot of work. And it reminded me how, you know, there's been times in my practice, like in the course of years where I'm more at peace or less at peace. Um, you kind of like find it and then lose it again. I'm just wondering if there's particular times in your life when you felt really enlightened or grounded. And, <laughs> and if so, were you just like meditating a ton or I guess it's a question of reflection. Yeah, 
It's like the path does not go, it does not go like that. It kind of goes, but in generally, you know, there's a, a, a kind of ease and uh, perspective that gets in more and more ingrained the more you do. Our model here and in many of the centers in the West, people who are getting involved in the Dharma, they'll do retreats and they'll get, you know, find really that sweet, wonderful spot of ease in the mind and relative, relatively free from entanglements. And, and then it wears off after a while because holding that in the world is very difficult. Unless you go into a monastery, in fact, it's really difficult to hold it. Hold that quality of, you know, that, that happens on, at the end of retreats. Um, I guess over the years, uh, you, you kind of get used to it. The, you know, okay, uh, I'm totally lost and crazed and I better do a retreat or I better start meditating every, every day, to, you know, up my meditation time to two hours. See if that does any good. And it usually does. If it, do, if it didn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here selling you snake oil. <laughs> really, really, it, 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 it works. Anybody else? I want to read a poem to end. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. Our true heritage. The cosmos is filled with precious gems. I want to offer a handful of them to you this morning. Each moment you are alive is a gem, shining through and containing earth and sky, water and clouds. It needs you to breathe gently for the miracles to be displayed. Suddenly you hear the birds singing, the pines chanting, see the flowers blooming, the blue sky, the white clouds, the smile and the marvelous look of your beloved. You, the richest person on earth, who have been going around begging for a living, Stop being the destitute child. Come back and claim your heritage. We should enjoy our happiness and offer it to everyone. Cherish this very moment. Let go of the stream of distress and embrace life fully in your arms. Let's just sit for a moment before we leave.
I forgot one more poem here. Um, Panam Tupton is uh, a Tibetan Lama who's been teaching in the Bay Area for a number of years now, and he and his followers just bought a piece of land that they call Sweetwater Sanctuary, and uh, it caught on fire. And uh, Anam Tupton was in France on retreat, and he wrote this poem back uh, for people. Uh, it burned a couple, a couple of the buildings on the land, but it didn't burn the meditation yurt. Um, anyway, this is his poem, Dancing with Nature's Wrath. Sobrana's fire is burning everything that gets in her way. She is merciless. She is magnificent from a distance. She does not listen to our prayers. She does not spare anyone's begging. She is raging with cosmic wrath, burning a paradise on earth, a place we cherished with our hearts, sweet water sanctuary. Right now our hearts are burning not with fire, not with anger, not with sadness, but with compassion. The folks who lost their homes, may they find comfort in the kindness poured out by others. The innocent animals who are terrified, may they find safety from the danger. The firefighters, may all the good forces gather to make sure they are not in harm's way. Never forget the redwoods happily spreading their seeds. Many baby trees soon are going to grow. The whole host of earth spirits are dancing to welcome nature's rejuvenation. Is this good or bad? Let's try not to find an easy answer for everything. Let's stay with the not knowing. Many found true freedom by surrendering to the not knowing. This is indeed an ancient secret that liberated thousands of hearts. Dancing with nature's wrath. Thank you all for being here. Wonderful evening. Don't forget to vote for me for president. Yeah, write, write my name or nobody. <laughs>